I'm Philip Rucker. I'm the White House Bureau Chief at The Washington Post. Every day I'm watching what President Trump does. I'm asking questions of his advisors. I'm trying to get to the bottom of why he's doing what he's doing and what the consequences are for our country. And our goal every day is to really unearth new facts, to bring light to things that are hidden in our government. When I publish a big scoop, we get immediate feedback, positive, negative. But the people who are supportive and encouraging, they want to know what they can do to help and to propel us forward. And I say it's really simple. Just subscribe. Be a reader of The Washington Post. And you can do that today at postreports.com slash subscribe. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Olorunipa with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling from The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, January 14th. Today, a presidential candidate like no other, mixed messages on Iran, and the corrosive effect of doctored photos in politics. The former New York mayor, Mike Bloomberg, has only been in this race for a couple months, but he is coming out big in the last few weeks. Michael Shear is a national political reporter for The Post. Mayor Michael Bloomberg and Tom Steyer are outspending the field. Mike Bloomberg has more money than God. He's opening his wallet in nationwide advertising. And the former mayor is spending more in this race than any of his Democratic rivals. It's absolutely true that he is spending more money than anyone else, probably anyone in history has ever spent at this point. But that almost understates it. What distinguishes Bloomberg's campaign from every other presidential campaign, every other political campaign in any of our lifetimes, is it is a campaign that has no financial boundaries. I'm spending all my money to get rid of Donald Trump. It's not that he is spending more. It's that there are no limits on what he will spend. Do you want me to spend more or less? End of story which is a hard idea to get your head around, but usually don't have people worth $54 billion running for president. So Bloomberg can depart with a billion and not notice it. He could depart with $2 billion and not notice it. It's pretty hard after you get to $2 billion to even spend more money on a political race. And so what that means is right now he's doing everything at once, and he's trying to do it better than everyone else. That means he has basically built, for what looks like a long-shot primary campaign, a fully formed general election campaign, the sort of thing you would see if you'd walked into Hillary Clinton's Brooklyn offices in October of 2016. He -hmm. has it now in January, you know, for a primary campaign in March. And he's built it basically in two months from scratch. So exactly how much money is he spending? And what does that look like in terms of his strategy on how he could possibly win? So, so far, Bloomberg has laid down $200 million, probably more in television and, and radio and digital spending. Uh, He has offices in uh, 27 states right now. He employs more than 800 people on his campaign. He has rented out an entire floor of a building previously occupied by the New York Times, actually, in Times Square in Manhattan. It is clearly the biggest campaign, I think, on either side right now. And he's doing it after, you know, entering the race about two months ago. He is also spending enormous amounts of money and, and plans to spend much more on a general election strategy to defeat Donald Trump. And that includes a data operation that he's building because his advisors think he can actually build basically a better data consulting firm than exists right now on the Democratic side. Um, That includes a pretty large policy shop in which he's basically repurposed Bloomberg philanthropies and, and the opinion section of Bloomberg News Division to produce ideas. 
for the Democratic Party and includes a lot of money he is offering to give to other state and local Democratic Party organizations. We don't really know the extent of that, but for instance, he gave $5 million to Stacey Abrams' Voter Protection Initiative. He's pledged millions more for voter registration around the country. He gave nearly a million dollars to the Democratic National Committee when he got in. But at the same time, even though he has all this money and is spending all this money, he's still starting so much later than so many other candidates. So for these early states like Iowa and New Hampshire, what does it look like there? How is he going to catch up? He's not going to catch up in Iowa and New Hampshire. He's decided that he's not going to compete in the first four primary contests. That's a shift from what his strategy was a year ago when he was thinking of initially getting in, but he didn't get in in time. And, and there are benefits to that for him. There's not going to be you know, any disappointment in terms of his showing in the Iowa caucus because he's not competing in the Iowa caucus. He's not advertising in Iowa, except for what shows up on national TV that goes there. The downside, though, is he's not going to plant a flag either. And he's sort of thrown up to chance the fate of his campaign to whether or not the Democratic Party decides to get behind someone uh, in those early states, because he has no control over those early states. So for him, is it basically just like do or die on Super Tuesday, that that will be his day? No day will matter more in the Democratic primary calendar than March 3rd. And that's because, you know, something like uh, 40% of the delegates, including 14 states, including very large states like Texas and California, will be awarded on that day. The beginning of his day will be Super Tuesday. But I think do or die happens before that. I think do or die is whether Joe Biden does really well in the first four contests. If Joe Biden comes out of Iowa winning, does well in New Hampshire, wins Nevada, wins South Carolina, which polls suggest he can do, he will have solidified the moderate lane that, that Michael Bloomberg is trying to get. And, and I think there won't be much chance for him to have much of an impact in the election. You know, I think he'll still run on Super Tuesday, but, but, the, but the space he would have occupied will be taken. Um, but he's willing to make that bet. He's okay with that. And there is a very good chance, probably a you know greater than half chance, that that doesn't happen. And that either the Democratic Party splits among those first four contests, leading to some chaos walking into Super Tuesday, or Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and some of the more progressive candidates are doing very well, and the moderate side of the party is beginning to freak out by the time Super Tuesday uh, rolls around. And, and then Mike Bloomberg can step in and say, I got this. You know, I got not only the campaign, I got the message and I got the money and I'll and I'll carry you through. But it's not like he's a candidate without any baggage, right? There are plenty of reasons why a lot of voters, a lot of Democratic voters might be very resistant to the idea of voting for him. There are. And much more of that is likely to come out in the in the um, coming months. Let's start with Democratic primary voters have not. Uh, been really happy about income inequality generally and and the increasing role of billionaires in politics. And, Mike and a guy ben, like explicitly buying his way through the race is sort of a bad look. Yeah, he's he's the poster child for that. You know, his defense is I'm doing it for you. I'm on your side. So I'm like the friendly billionaire, but he's still the billionaire buying politics. There's a lot of complexities to what it would mean to have someone who has run and still owns one of the largest private companies in America as president, the same sort of complexities you have with President Trump, he's going to have to work through that. There's a long history of employee lawsuits at his company, Bloomberg, some of them dealing with sexual harassment. There are non-disclosure agreements that he has said he is not willing to release the other parties from at this point. That's probably going to be an issue. There are policy positions he's taken in the past that have offended big parts of the Democratic electorate, including his longtime support for stop and frisk policing in New York. He's since renounced that, but for you know, more than a decade, he was 
sort of the lead champion of that policy. So there are lots of bumps along the road ahead if everything goes right for him. The, the thing that distinguishes him is that he doesn't seem to mind. I mean, the idea of risk for him is, is, is calculated differently than it would be for other candidates. And that includes not just risk to his reputation, but also risk to his bank account. He really, I think, has decided at this point in his life and career that he is primarily a philanthropist. He is focused on giving his money away. And there is no cause right now that he cares about more than keeping Donald Trump from winning re-election in November. But then why not just choose another candidate to support, a candidate who has been running for probably a year now, that there are many options where he could give a bunch of that money and be a game changer in the Democratic race. So why is he taking this route of doing it himself rather than just supporting the kind of Democratic infrastructure that he's talking about and supporting a candidate that could win with his money? He said that uh, he looked around at the Democratic presidential field this fall and didn't see someone who could beat Donald Trump. That said, if Mike Bloomberg is not the nominee, almost certainly lots of money will be spent to help whoever is the nominee win. And I think that's probably going to be true, even if it's someone he doesn't ideologically agree with, like Bernie Sanders, who wins the nomination. The Bloomberg campaign has been built to continue even if Mike Bloomberg, the nominee, uh, does not succeed. And that will mean on-the-ground organizing in states like Arizona and North Carolina. That will mean a continuation of the TV ad campaign and the digital ad campaign that we've been seeing a lot of. And that will mean a repurposing of this data operation that he's built. So he doesn't see a candidate right now, but but that doesn't mean he's not going to support whoever the nominee is. So, of course, President Trump and Michael Bloomberg have a personal relationship. They've known each other for a long time. And at various points, that relationship has been more friendly than at other points. And it's interesting that Bloomberg really seems to be framing his campaign around beating Donald Trump. So what does that say to you? I think Donald Trump is the main motivator for Mike Bloomberg right now. And as part of that, both Bloomberg and his team are really targeting a lot of what they do to get Trump's attention specifically. You had last week Bloomberg announcing that he was going to spend $11 million on a Super Bowl ad to basically go up against the Trump campaign, which was expected to put an ad up. You had ads coming out on Monday really targeting President Trump's health care policy and health care record. Trump tweeted something about mini Mike Bloomberg in response, and it delighted the Bloomberg people. I think there is, to some extent, an audience of one here. They're trying to provoke the president. Little Michael will fail. He'll spend a lot of money. And the president, we've reported, uh, is paying very close attention. He knows Mike Bloomberg well from New York. But I know Michael Bloomberg fairly well, not too well, fairly well. Well enough, he will not do very well. And if he did, I'd be happy. There is nobody I'd rather run against than little Michael. That I can tell you. The campaign is concerned that the financial advantage they thought they would have in a general election may go away because of Bloomberg. And they see the path that could uh, that Bloomberg could take to win a general election if he can get through the primary. So the trolling is part of the strategy, that if you can elicit a response from President Trump, it makes Bloomberg seem like more of a front-runner, viable candidate, the fact that President Trump is worried about him. Yes. The first tweet that Mike Bloomberg put out uh, in response to Donald Trump's attack was, next time you tweet about us, please put our... Our, our Twitter handle in your tweet. <laughs> so yes, there is there is definitely a one-upmanship of um, two very wealthy men uh, living in Manhattan 
who see themselves very differently and see their accomplishments very differently. So if Bloomberg is basically abandoning Iowa as a potential state that he can win, who is looking like they're doing well in Iowa? Like, what is the state of play there? It's a jump ball still. We've had a couple polls in the last couple of weeks uh, that have shown uh, Bernie Sanders with relative health. Another poll has shown Joe Biden doing well. But basically, you have a four-way tie at the top between uh, Biden, Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Pete Buttigieg. Um, something between 40 and 60 percent of Iowans with roughly three weeks to go say they, they are willing to change their mind. So we just don't know. The polls are not determinative at this point. And we're running out of time, and someone's going to have to make a decision. The other thing that is interesting in Iowa is that many voters will be able to go to caucus and essentially caucus for two different people because they will be supporting someone who doesn't meet the 15% threshold. So they can walk in saying they support Andrew Yang. Uh, and walk out saying they support you know, Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden. So there's a lot of fluidity at the moment. That, if anything, has increased the stakes of the state because coming out of Iowa, what matters is perception. And right now, the perception is that it's a tie, which means there's a lot to win and a lot to lose for all four of those top candidates. And it, it really could be determinative in a way that it hasn't always been in the Democratic primary. Michael Shear is a national political reporter for The Post. So, Shane Harris... Walk me through the explanations that the administration has given so far on why they decided to kill Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. Well, the first explanation they gave was really from Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who shortly after the strike said that the U.S. had intelligence about imminent attacks being planned by Soleimani that could threaten hundreds of American lives. This was a bad guy. We took him from the battlefield. We saw that he was plotting further plans to take down Americans, in some cases, many Americans. We took the right action to defend and protect America. President Trump will never shy away from that. And this was important because this idea of imminence not only, of course, implies some urgency, but actually could substantiate a legal case for taking out Soleimani. So there was some indication early on that the administration maybe was going in that direction. Um, we started hearing from sources pretty early on of that. Pompeo was overstating the intelligence a bit, that the imminence question was actually quite debatable. And so then you kind of had this tussle for several days about whether it was imminent, whether it was not imminent, and what did people actually know. Subtly, but kind of progressively, the administration started backing away from that idea and started talking more about the threat that Qasem Soleimani posed in the region and historically had posed as well, uh, and the threat to U.S. interests on an ongoing basis. So now we kind of go from imminent to more of a generalized threat, everyone understanding he's a bad guy, he's planned attacks before, he might do it again. And then where does President Trump come into this? What has he said about what the rationale was? Trump hasn't really said much about the rationale except to say that it was the right thing to do to take Soleimani out. He actually the other day in a tweet said that it didn't matter whether there was an imminent plot uh, afoot. So he sort of blew that piece apart. But what he has said is he's gone actually now to the point where he's going out and he's identifying targets 
that he claimed that Soleimani was going to hit. So a few days ago, uh, he first said uh, that the U.S. embassy in Baghdad had been under threat. He later then at a rally in Toledo said embassies, plural, were under threat. Soleimani was actively planning new attacks, and he was looking very seriously at our embassies and not just the embassy in Baghdad. But we stopped him, and we stopped him quickly, and we stopped him cold. And then in an interview with Fox News, made the really extraordinary claim that four embassies he believed were threatened. So he's gotten very specific in making it sound like, in fact, Soleimani was about to hit targets and specifically embassies. Probably it was going to be the embassy in Baghdad. I believe it would have been four embassies. And I think that probably uh, Baghdad already started. And this idea that embassies were under threat, do we know where that idea came from and whether or not there's any validity to it? We still don't entirely know. It's important to note, though, that the officials that we've talked to and people who've spoken on the record, senior officials, give no indication that there was ever a specific warning about threats to four embassies. Secretary of Defense Esper was probably the clearest on this when he said uh, in Sunday show interviews that he was not aware of any intelligence about a threat to four particular embassies. Well, the president didn't say there was a tangible, uh, he didn't cite a specific piece of evidence. What he said is he probably, he believed. Are you saying there wasn't one? I didn't see one with regard to four embassies. What I'm saying is I share the president's view that probably my expectation was they were going to go after our embassies. The embassies are the most prominent display of American presence in a country. So there's this question of, well, where is this coming from exactly? You know, did the president extrapolate from a briefing that he got? What's the information? We still don't entirely know, but as best we can tell, there is no indication that four particular embassies were under threat. So then why did he say that if it's if there's no intelligence suggesting that that's actually true? Well, certainly I think he believed that there was a threat to U.S. interests. But the question of why did he say it, I think you could probably surmise that at the time he did it, the administration was coming under a lot of pressure to make a public case using, if not declassified intelligence, something more specific. Why was this imminent? Why did it necessitate doing the strike? And importantly, uh, senior officials from the administration had given briefings to lawmakers about their case for the strike. And many Democratic and some Republican lawmakers were quite underwhelmed by the quality of those presentations. Uh, Senators Rand Paul and Mike Lee actually came out and, and said that they had not heard anything that really persuaded them. What we were told over and over again was, uh, look, this action was necessary. Uh, this was a bad guy. We, we had to do it. And um, uh, we can't have division. We can't have dissension. Uh, within our ranks, within our government, or else it sends this, the wrong signal to the Iranians. And I just, I think that's completely wrong. So the president was losing support, not just from Democrats, but from members of his own party for this, for the, for the rationale for the strike. And the fact that President Trump really honed in on this idea of embassies being under threat, does that tell us anything about him? Well, I think that it does. Uh, the president actually has talked publicly about not wanting a Benghazi on his watch. And Benghazi, of course, referring to the attack on the U.S. consulate there during the Obama administration. 
Benghazi has achieved this kind of like totemic quality among Republicans, right? It is a proxy for everything that was wrong in their minds about Obama's foreign policy in the Middle East, about his perceived weakness and his fecklessness, and importantly about Hillary Clinton's role in all of this, right? So, I mean, this is sort of a touchstone in Republican politics. President Trump, we know from talking to his aides, and he's talked about this publicly, was determined not to let the situation in Iraq, and particularly at the embassy in Baghdad, turn into his Benghazi, if you will, when there were protests following that U.S. airstrike on a militia group in Iraq, and those protesters came, the supporters of that group came to the embassy in Baghdad. He's actually talked publicly in the past few days about how that was a moment that he looked at and said, this is not going to be my Benghazi. We did it exactly the opposite of Benghazi, where they got there so late. All they saw when they got there days later were burning embers from days before. That's all they saw. So I think this idea of threats to embassies is something not just in the current moment that's on his mind, but is something that looms in his imagination and that he does not want on his watch. I think if there was an attack on a U.S. embassy or diplomatic facility that caused a loss of life, the comparisons to Benghazi would be unavoidable. And I think in Trump's mind, that would be politically catastrophic. But the fact that you now have President Trump and Mike Pompeo and Esper all saying different things about what the actual reasoning was that went into this very significant decision, I can imagine that that really undermines our credibility going forward when it comes to people believing us in situations in the future about what is and isn't a threat. So I'm wondering, what are the ramifications of that, of the fact that that this these explanations are getting mushier? There's an immediate domestic political ramification, which is that the administration is eroding its credibility. I think we've, we've talked about this before, that there was always going to be a moment of national crisis where the president and his aides were going to have to come to the public and say, trust us, something really bad is happening here, and we're going to take some actions and we want your support. Well, you know, large chunks of the country don't believe this president when he says anything on a normal day. So he's, he's facing an uphill climb there. This is also really strained relations with the allies, and particularly with our European allies who were signatories to that Iran nuclear agreement. Um, we've already seen today that some of those countries, England, France, and Germany, are now taking steps to possibly start pulling back from the agreement or at least try to settle some disputes because Iran has now said they're pulling out of it as well after these latest hostilities. So we need those allies on our side if the administration is going to do what the president has expressly said he wants to do, which is to form a new agreement. Remember, he talked about the Iran agreement during his campaign as being the worst deal he'd ever seen. He has said he wants to form a new nuclear agreement with Iran. He is going to need the Allies' commitment to do that. In my conversations with officials from our from Allied governments, they think the administration has made a complete hash of the legal justification for hitting Soleimani, of the sort of the communications rollout for this. And there were already real questions about President Trump's credibility, not the intelligence community's credibility. On those working relationships that we have with foreign governments, there's still real trust there. But there's already been tremendous strain and frustration with the political leadership in this country. And that has, I think, been driven to kind of a point of maximum tension over this Iran issue. Shane Harris covers national security and intelligence for The Post.
And now, one more thing. On Monday, President Trump retweeted an image of Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer in a turban and hijab to suggest that they were being too friendly to the Iranian regime. Totally fake image, totally edited, and yet President Trump helped make it go viral. He retweeted it to his 70 million followers. It now has more than 10,000 retweets, something that a lot of people are talking and looking at, even though it's totally bogus. I'm Drew Harwell. I cover AI for The Washington Post. There's been a flood of these fake images and videos, even over the last year, putting Barack Obama in this image of a fake handshake with the Iranian president, making Nancy Pelosi sound drunk in a video. Basically, he's saying back to me, why would I work with you if you're investigating me? But the fact is, something happened there making Joe Biden look like he was rubbing his hands all over himself in a fake video that was retweeted by Trump. I shake hands, I hug people, I I grab men and women by the shoulders and say, you can do this. And you're seeing these a lot more now. They're going viral on social media a lot more often. They're targeting more people. And pretty much every Democrat running for office in 2020, and even a lot of the top Democrats in Congress have all sort of been targeted by these fake videos. So there's a long history of using this kind of altered imagery. I mean, we have political cartoons, we have mailers where politicians always want to make the other candidate look as poorly as possible. 1982. Reaganomics sinks our country into the deepest recession and unemployment in 50 years. Now Ronald Reagan says the economy is moving up. It is up on a mountain of debt and record Reagan deficits. But there's something different now in that these are much easier to make. The tools are easier and cheaper, more widely available. It's very easy using social media and the web to make these have a global audience, to get these in front of everybody. People love outrage on social media. They click it, they retweet it, they share it. And the point of these is not always to convert the hearts and minds of people who disagree with them. Oftentimes it's just to energize the base and make people feel that extra emotion about who they're looking at. Make them feel that maybe Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are on the side of the enemy, even if the image is totally fake. That emotion is resonant, even if the logic is totally not there. The problem with having more disinformation online is, one, it makes it harder to know the truth. And we're also potentially going to trust our politicians less. That's going to make us less confident in the democratic process and less confident in legitimate information that is spread on the web. There's a corrosive effect to the truth when you see so much BS being shared online. It's going to make it harder to really believe the things we need to believe in order to keep this functioning democracy alive. Drew Harwell writes about artificial intelligence for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you're a fan of the show, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Like one listener, Citizen9548, who said they personally appreciate whoever says, wait, what does that mean? We're glad that our confusion can come in handy. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.